Hello. Thank you for being here. The Lord be with you. Oh, it's spring at last. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we turn to you again, binding our hearts together in your love for us, in your mercy and your grace. And we, we present to you our lives and ask that you will make all the improvements in us necessary for us to be the followers of Jesus that you want us to be. And this, with all of our other burdens and issues and concerns, we lay at your feet and offer to you through the name of Jesus, your Son, who has loved us always and will love us to all eternity. Amen. Luke chapter 19. Uh, this will be familiar to you. We hear it every year. When Jesus drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. As you probably know already, today is Palm Sunday. And reading this passage, it occurs to me how little preparation was put in this event. This procession of poverty is... G. Campbell Morgan referred to it. Jesus did not send an event team into Jerusalem two months in advance. He did not pull permits, gather resources, or begin advertising so that they made sure there'd be a big crowd and everyone would be excited. They weren't 
they weren't selling hot dogs. Well, of course not, or, or bagels or whatever. Um, he simply arrived, and from that point on, everything seemed to happen spontaneously. Um, oh, uh, go get a donkey uh, for me to ride on. Uh, and if this happens, tell them this. And all of a sudden, here's the crowd and, and the shouting. <clears throat> How did it turn into such a big deal without someone orchestrating it, managing it? The answer is, it was just Jesus himself. It was his person. It was the wonderful works that these people had seen in their own lives at his hands and by his word. It was his teaching. It was it was Jesus himself. From another point of view, this event had been a thousand years in the making. The, the script was written for it and choreographed uh, in Psalm 118, verses 19 through 28. And if you read that psalm, read that portion of that psalm, uh, you'll see how it finds its fulfillment in this event. For Israel... Jerusalem was the center of the world. In the Old Testament scriptures, it was also called Zion. Only Zion was more than a place on the map, whereas Jerusalem was a place on the map. Zion was God's promise fulfilled, God's covenant ratified. It was mostly the poets and the prophets who made reference to Zion. I think Zion appears six times before the book of Psalms, but from Psalms through the prophet, it occurs more than 500 times. So, so it was the, the dreamers and the visionaries who spoke of Zion, who saw God's design for Jerusalem and, and praised God for it, and then also bemoaned the fact that so often Jerusalem was only a city and not Zion. The poet said in Psalm 48, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. The prophet Isaiah, among many other things that he says about Zion, said, Then the Lord will create over the whole of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Zion tells the story of the history of God and his people. The, the fate of Zion was the fate of Israel. The health of Zion was the health of Israel. It also told the story of God's unfolding salvation for all nations and, and every person. Zion had a spectacular destiny, and for that very reason, its failure was also spectacular. Looking at Jerusalem, 
Jesus saw its high walls. And inside those walls, he saw the fortress of Mark Antony, uh, Marcus Antonius, and the temple of the Lord. In the upper level of the city, he saw the lavish, luxurious homes of the priest. He saw the busy streets crowded with merchants and buyers. He saw all of this, and something in his heart broke when he saw it. He saw the city as it was then, unaware and unsuspecting. He saw the city as it could be, if only they knew. And he saw the city as it would be. He saw its future and the, and the rubble that it would become, a vacant mound haunted by its past. Jerusalem did not have to fall. Zion did not have to disappear from the face of the earth. Its residents did not have to be killed or enslaved. If only, if only they had known on this day the things that make for peace. This specific day that Jesus was there. Because many centuries before the poet had written, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And though we would like to use that verse for every day of our lives, it has specific application to this day. And Jesus says, if only you had known on this day the things that make for peace, this day that the Lord has made to bring his Savior into Jerusalem, if only they knew. And that day, the crowd of disciples were rejoicing, and Jesus wept. What are we going to do with the Palm Sunday story this year? I mean, I have to ask that question every year. How can I make this interesting? Or how can we, we relive it in such a way that it really does affect us, that we really get involved in it and then begin to see all of its revelations? My thought today is that we can find in the story of Palm Sunday an instrument panel. Now, we're all familiar with the gauges on our car's dashboards, that they provide us important information, which we depend on for safe and successful travel. We have to look at, at the temperature, at the oil gauge, uh, we have to make sure we have enough gas to get to our destination, and so on. Let's imagine for a moment that we have a discipleship instrument panel. What gauges are on it, and what do they tell us about our, our safety and our success in our travels with Jesus? The Palm Sunday story provides several concerns for us to consider. And if we want to check the status of our spiritual health, I suggest that we examine three specific indicators. Okay, so let's start with this. Let's start with our vision. How's your vision doing? 
do you have a vision of your life in Christ, of what it's supposed to be, of what it looks like, of, of how you're to live it, what you're, what's expected of you? Do you have a vision of your future? And are you making progress with that vision? Jesus saw the city and obviously he saw more than buildings and traffic. He saw a vision of the city. And that's why he wept because Jerusalem was not Zion at that time. The, the sadness that he felt was over what the people could not see. It was hidden from their eyes and they did not know the time of their visitation. We're told in the Proverbs that where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. <clears throat> Why? The law gives boundaries and instructions, and it organizes the, the life of God's people. But where there is no vision, people are let loose. That's what that means. They, they let loose. <clears throat> They, they lose focus and become unproductive. They, they play like at the foot of the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai when Moses was up there and they turned to idolatry. They let loose. Same Hebrew word is used there. A vision provides us with a game plan. It sets specific limits on what we can do and what we cannot do, what we should be doing and should not be doing. And it able, a vision enables us to focus our resources, our time, and our energy so it doesn't get squandered or wasted away. Kathleen McAlpin, who I've come to really appreciate her, her writing and teaching, uh, Kathleen McAlpin says, the search for meaning in ministry is ultimately the search for God, the vision of God. I believe that taking time to theologically reflect on experience and praying to seek the presence of God in the complexities of life in church and society is an urgent call for all ministry today. And she does not limit ministry to professional church staff. We all have a work to do. A vision comes to us through our mind and imagination. And I'll qualify that in a moment, but it's something that we can think about rationally. And first we take a hard look at the reality of our world. It's easy to accept the world as it is and to say, well, that's just how things are and we have to live with it. We have to make the best of it. But we have to remove our blinders so that nothing is hidden from us, so that we don't pretend that we cannot see the suffering, the abuse, the exploitation, exploitation, the poverty, 
that's around us. This is what the prophet Habakkuk does in uh, the first chapter of his book of prophecies. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is seeing his culture, his people, his society, his town, his village, his nation for what it really is. He's not missing any of the crime, any of the injustice that's going on. So we begin there. We, we take a hard look at the reality of our, of our environment, our society, our neighborhood, our community, ourselves, our own lives and family. And, and we want to deal with reality. We want to live in reality. Christianity is not supposed to be a, a virtual reality. It's not supposed to be a fairy tale where we believe all wonderful things, butterflies and rainbows. We need to see the dirt and the grime, the darkness and the, and the pollution. So we begin by looking at reality and then we look for God's response to this, God's answer to it, God's solution. So Habakkuk, after, uh, pardon me, Habakkuk, after seeing these terrible things and getting a confusing, confusing response from God says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The, the watchtower was typically on the wall of a city. Guards were post on that, posted on that wall to look out at the horizon and to see if any enemies were coming and to warn the whole, the whole city. And this is what Habakkuk says he's going to do. Well, I'm going to post myself in my watchtower so I can observe what's happening and get the answer from God that I need. The next thing that happens is God's vision comes. And God's vision to Habakkuk is so powerful that Paul digs it out of the book of Habakkuk and makes it a major theme in the book of Romans and also in Galatians. I said that we use our mind and our imagination, uh, but I want to qualify what I mean by imagination. We use what the theologian Walter Brueggemann has famously called prophetic imagination. This is an inspired imagination. So it's not just me make-believing or coming up with my own dreams. <clears throat> Basically, it's waking up to the realization that things could be different. It does not have to be this bad. There does not have to be this much crime, this much wrongdoing, this much injustice, this much exploitation. Kathleen McAlpin, again, <clears throat> again, 
says that when we go through society purchasing things and engaging in society's various opportunities and activities, we need to stop and ask ourselves once in a while, in order to make this happen, who benefits and who is burdened? In order for me to buy these, this clothing at, at a very inexpensive price, who benefits from that? But who is burdened to make it possible? The food I eat, who might be burdened? Well, I benefit from it. <clears throat> the fact that things could be different needs to be for us a concrete idea of how things could be. It's seeing the specific tasks that need to be done. And it's seeing how we can participate in doing that work. Prophetic imagination is a hope-inspired, a hope-filled imagination. It's not optimistic. It knows human nature. But it has to be driven by hope. It has to be rooted in hope. Our vision does not have to be grandiose. I know that there are people who talk about global enterprises and, and taking the gospel into all the world, and I think that's wonderful, and I support that in a number of ways. However, God's vision for my life is not global. It's local and rather small compared to those who, who are going after the global, the global vision. And, uh, and our vision, is, it doesn't have to be grand, and it doesn't uh, necessarily have to be a goal that we reach. We just do the work. We're not responsible for the outcome. For example, God told the prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. And whether they hear you or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So God doesn't hold Ezekiel responsible for the people's response. He only holds him responsible for, for doing his own job, his own duty. And so our vision is the gift of, of seeing what God sees and our role in that. That's the first indicator of of how we're doing in, in following Jesus. The second indicator is to check our passion. And passion generally grows out of vision. When I see what God wants to do, I can get excited about that. I can be enthused and energized to pursue that. Jesus entered Jerusalem well, first of all, from the outside, he looked at Jerusalem and he wept. When he entered Jerusalem, he chased the business entrepreneurs out of the temple and said, this is to be a house of prayer, my father's house. You've made it a den of robbers. It's not enough to know the vision. We must feel passion for the vision, a passion that drives us. If the vision is in our minds and imagination. Passion is in our hearts and spirits. 
Passion is what gets us off the couch and out into the world. We, we must care, and we must care passionately. I was reading in Second Samuel this week where David was chased out of Jerusalem by his oldest son, Absalom. And this man and his family came to join David in his exile. The man's name was Ittai. And David said, Ittai, you've only been here a short time. There's no reason for you to journey with me and suffer with me. This isn't, you're not a part of this. You have no, no horse in this show or however that goes. Uh, no pony in this show. No dog in this race. <laughs> this doesn't involve you. And Ittai said to him, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And I think that David was the kind of leader that could evoke that sort of commitment and devotion of people. It's a real heart devotion. Exactly what Jesus is for us, that he evokes from us also that willingness to go with him and die with him, to take up our cross and to follow him. And that brings us to the two meanings of passion. Passion can be an intense driving emotion. It's like a fire in the steam engine of our viscera. For a long time, I was confused about the second meaning of passion. And it's because when I was young, I mostly read the King James Bible. I probably read through the King James Bible eight times before I picked up a different translation. But the King James Version of the Bible mentions Jesus' apostles and says, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. And I, and I would read that and think, Jesus showed himself alive to his apostles after his passion? What does that mean? What was he passionate about? Uh, what strong emotion did he feel? Is he just talking about Jesus in the garden? And then later I learned that the King James Version was using an old meaning for the word passion that, that came from you know, Latin and, and Greek, which means to feel pain or to suffer. Passion can be pain and suffering. It can be the pain of grief. Walter Brueggemann says, the real criticism of society's wrongdoing begins in the capacity to grieve because that is the most visceral announcement that things are not right. If we are to understand prophetic criticism, we must see that its characteristic idiom is anguish and not anger. Oh, we can get angry real easy. We can get angry about society and all of its sins. But that's not the passion that moves the, the, the man of God or the woman of God. That's not the passion that makes us weep over the world. Brueggemann says, 
that the effect of living in our consumer culture is that it creates numbness. But prophetic ministry seeks to penetrate the numbness, to face the body of death in which we are caught. Clearly, the numbness sometimes evokes from us rage and anger, but the numbness is more likely to be penetrated by grief and lament. We can rage and be angry and still be numb by our world. But what gets through our, our shield, our lethargy, our apathy, our inability to see, what gets through to us is sadness and suffering. Kathleen McAlpin says, focus on an experience that has the potential to reveal to you a depth of value in your ministry or work. It would be well to consider an experience that holds some clear or deep emotion for you. Hold in your heart the, the picture of that, that child that's starving, that single mom who's doing the best she can, working two jobs to raise three kids and can barely make rent each month. See, this is true of Jesus who expressed his passion on more than one occasion and who was moved through passion into compassion, moved by compassion so often. The third indicator we want to check is mission. Jesus describes his mission in uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 34. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and those who've been sent to you. How many times I've wanted to gather you under my wings as a hen, a hen doth, doth her brood, as a hen gathers her chicks. Sorry, I slipped back into King James again. As the hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. You would not go for it. You would not cooperate. Jesus wanted to reach out to all the diaspora, the dispersion of, of Jews throughout the world and bring them all back to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, where they belonged. But they'd not cooperate with him. They'd not listen. They would not listen to him. And so he, he grieves. But this is his mission, to win all of God's lost children and bring them home to their father. Vision, we get through our mind and imagination. Passion is what goes on in our hearts and spirits. Mission is what we do with our bodies and souls. What is your role in God's vision? Whatever it is, do not think of it as small or inconsequential. Now, our vision does not have to be grandiose. Our vision can, I mean, ultimately, it's part of a greater vision that, that is grandiose. It's God's work throughout the world. But um, our vision does not have to be grandiose. It just has 
I'm sorry. It just has to be within our wheelhouse, all right? Because God's going to take what he's made you to be and even things that you love and enjoy doing, and he's going to say, now do this, do it here, do it in this way. Only what you do, even if it's a smile to a stranger, a couple dollars to a homeless person, if it's if it's helping someone move, if it's not inconsequential. Henri Nouwen said, to pray means to stop expecting from God the same small-mindedness which you discover in yourself. To pray is to walk in the full light of God and to say simply, without holding back, I am human and you are God. And that's where it stands. I am human. I do the small human things. God does the big divine things. This year, Palm Sunday is our annual checkup. We're going to take our temperature. We're going to check our heart rate and our blood pressure and see if we have a vision that generates a passion and dictates to us our mission. Bless one life and you have made a change in the world. Bless one life, and you have made a difference, because things can be different. Bless one life, and you have contributed to God's vision for Mount Zion, the holy Jerusalem, and his heaven to which he has called us. So with that in mind, now, May the Lord God go with us into this week, opening our eyes to our vision, to those things that need to be changed and for which we can do our part, giving us a passion that gets us going and actually doing something, fulfilling our mission. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I will see you next week, or you'll see me anyway. Um, let me know if you'd like to start meeting again in a park with social distancing and masks. We can work something out. Uh, otherwise, I will be here each Sunday. <sighs> I do miss you. Love you. See you later. Bye.